and welcome to Discussions in Tombridge, Wales, the podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. Uh, my name is John McGowan and I'm a clinical psychologist working in our centre. This week has been a very busy week in mental health. There's been a House of Commons Select Committee report on suicide. There's also been an update on the Department of Health's suicide prevention strategy and also a major speech by the Prime Minister signalling the government's direction of travel around mental health issues. To cheer over all of this in more detail, I'm joined by our regular panel of Anne Cook. Sorry, just taking a cup of tea, a sip of tea. Hi. Goodness, Anne, uh, Anne we want to sound professional. One <laughs> for our blooper reel. Um, Angela Gilchrist. Hi there, John. And Rachel Terry. Hello. Okay, we will drill a bit more deeply into in today's podcast into the developments on suicide prevention policy and I've talked to one of our colleagues who particularly specialises in this area over in Canterbury to help us with that. First of all though, Theresa May uh, made an attempt to get away from, I think, from her considerable headaches uh, such as rail strikes, resignations in Northern Ireland, whatever's going on with Brexit and make some you know, trumpeted announcements on, on mental health policy. We live in a country where, if you're born poor, you will die on average nine years earlier than others. If you're black, you're treated more harshly by the criminal justice system than if you're white. If you're a white working class boy, you're less likely than anybody else in Britain to go to university. If you're at a state school, you're less likely to reach the top professions than if you're educated privately. If you're a woman, you're likely to be paid less than a man. If you suffer from mental health problems, there's not enough help to hand. Uh, so first of all, Angela, um, as I said last time about the issue, I just wondered if you might want to take us through just some of the main points of what Theresa May said. Okay, well this is, has arisen, I think, out of what she's now calling her vision for the shared society. And that in itself seems to have come out of something that she said in her inaugural speech as Prime Minister whereby she said if you suffer from mental health problems there's not enough help to hand. She says that there is inadequate treatment that demands a new approach and she it seems that she herself became interested in mental health as she was keen on improving the police response to people with mental health needs and felt this was a top priority because she had direct experience of that when she was Home Secretary. Well, she was Home Secretary for a long time, I yeah. guess, so I, I mean, in yeah. some way I wonder if that's colours the way that she's looking at it. Well, I, I think it definitely does, and we can get into that in our discussion. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a, a good motivation for being interested in mental health, although it might be one of them. But we're also looking at how this intersects with the third progress report of the Cross-Government Outcomes Strategy to Save Lives. Um, it's been found that suicide is now the biggest killer of men under 50, a leading cause of death in young people and new mothers and the central driver of the national strategy uh, that has arisen as a consequence of this is stated to be that suicide is preventable and that the rate of it must be reduced by 10% by at least 2020 or 2021. 
So that's the background, really, to, to what we're talking about today. Well, as I say, Theresa May has a number of headaches on her um, slate every day, I think, but she's yet to face the scrutiny of the Salomons podcast, really. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it will happen. Forget about Martin McGuinness resigning. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks for going through that, Angela. As I say, we'll, we'll come maybe to the uh, suicide prevention strategy, which is an update of uh, a, a bigger document, 2012 document, uh, shortly. But just, I mean, just first of all, I just wonder, what, what do we think of what Theresa May's saying? She's clearly trying to have a different conversation about something else, and it, it is, I think, possibly very welcome, actually focusing on mental health. But what, what do we think of what she said? Yeah, I think the, uh, the focus on mental health is hugely welcome, uh, as is the, the focus on parity between um, mental health and physical health, because we know that uh, mental health services are hugely under-resourced and hugely stretched, so um, it was wonderful to hear her talking about that. Whether funds follow is a different matter, we'll, we'll see. And the emphasis again on social justice as well, which uh, was very refreshing to hear from, from a Conservative Prime Minister in particular. Well, she quite likes talking about social justice, yes. actually. She's not, not averse to talking about those kinds of issues. And the shared society, interesting. clearly not the big society. Antipathy towards David Cameron, who in many aspects of his agenda is well known. But um, so what do you think? Sorry, Richard. You gonna... I was going to say, though, I, th- I agree that it's extremely positive that she was focusing on mental health. However, I felt that her words were fairly shallow, given the massive cuts under a coalition and then... Conservative government that we've seen to mental health services. So I think it's all very well to talk about the importance of mental health services, but at the same time, whilst your government is seeing them being um, destructed, it's kind of quite difficult to hear. Really, I found. Yeah, that was certainly the main one of the main criticisms on social media. I think is, mm. you know, she can talk the talk, but mm. what's the what's the walk? Well, yes. they've actually overseen the decimation of the health service. Really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it is obviously hugely welcome to hear her talking about mental health, but I suppose there was part of me that was a little bit cynical about what she's calling the shared society. If if I cast my mind back to David Cameron when he became Prime Minister, I think the first Monday of his first parliamentary week was the day on which he launched the so-called big society. And and this sounds similar but different, but but with something of an emphasis on mental health. Obviously, it's hugely welcome, but it's more about how we do it. And while there is some emphasis on on prevention here, it's it's more about treatment and coming in after the event and, and what can be done afterwards although although you know it's heartening that there is some emphasis on prevention there is also some emphasis on public health initiatives which is welcome um, but I guess it, it's to be seen how all this comes out in the wash, really. I mean, there's a couple of points there. One is the issue of cuts. And I mean, I, I said in the last podcast, I do think it's really easy, as soon as you're in charge of Twitter feed, just to kind of criticise the government for making cuts. I mean, as it happens, actually, George George Osborne was printing money, you know, quantitative easing, you know, like, like Jeremy Corbyn, actually, in, in some ways, though he maintained quite an austere reputation. I wonder sometimes if the issues with NHS funding more broadly are actually quite so party political. I mean, if you think about it, many, many of us are surviving, many more of us are surviving birth, we're living longer, there are new treatments. As a percentage of GDP, I think I'm correct in saying this, fund spending on the health service is rising. 
it does keep rising. But how do we deal with the fact that there are more of us around and we have different kind of illness loads and our expectations of the health service continually rise? And well, I, a, cyn- I, a cynic might say, don't sell it off so that we then have to pay the money to the shareholders of the companies that actually deliver the services. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that Labour and the Tories, I mean, this is a broader discussion really about health service, the absolute fundamentals of health service funding. They're trying to apply market efficiencies mm-hmm in the NHS in the attempt to drive cost saving. And, you know, markets are very efficient tools in some ways. I mean, there's all sorts of question marks about the kind of way the incentives that are set up within markets and some of the mess that you have when you start to locate different bits of service with different providers. Do people really know how much things are going to cost? You know, do we sometimes have under-costed bids and things like that? These are tricky and quite complicated questions, and I think they do transcend whether it's you know, hived out to third sector providers or not. I mean, God, in our gig, some of the most innovative things in mental health, some of the most innovative things come from third sector providers these days. Well, I was going, I mean, you're saying that the money that's going into the NHS is rising, but I would say that that's not proportionally going to mental health services. So the way that commissioning groups are spending that money, which is to some extent outside of central government control at the moment, it's not being spent in mental health services at the moment, I would say, fairly. We're talking about parity between mental and physical health services, and at the moment that's a very long way off, I would say. And that, I suppose, one of, was one of the more explicit elements of Theresa May's, May's speech. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think there's a reality to mental health services being a kind of Cinderella, and she seemed to be meeting that. I, I, I was quite struck that there were some quite eye-catching initiatives in it, um, things like school, initiatives and things like that um, what, what do you think of yeah. those I know that you were involved in some social media exchanges about things like mental health first aid and yes like well I think that. it's I mean the first thing about I'd like to say about that is I think it's huge again hugely welcome the support for schools and teachers because I did some recent research with a former trainee here uh, which has attracted quite a lot of attention uh, which basically found that there are no conversations in classrooms usually about, well, from our small some, uh, number of teachers that we interviewed, that teachers completely avoid the subject of mental health because they don't know, they, they feel anxious about talking about it. So any support, I think, is great. I, I think the, uh, the um, concerns that some of us had about this proposal to um, train all teachers in something called mental health first aid really depends what you mean by mental health first aid because uh, it, there is a danger, I think, that it can be training in spotting symptoms of disorders and labelling children and then that the, the risk is then that that dis- actually disempowers the teachers that they feel that they don't know how to, to help the, the children and that they need to kind of pass them on to specialists and of course because of the cuts in mm-hmm. services they can't get anybody to see them so where does that leave you? But I think the, uh, the idea of perhaps psychological first aid training in Uh, understanding the psychology um, of distress and the kind of distress that young people are likely to experience and what can help Mm. would be hugely helpful. So I think there's potentially a real opening for psychologists here to to help with that. And even just opening up conversations of talking about how you're feeling and we all get stressed sometimes because I think stigma reduction is a key thing actually and that should start from in our schools. Yeah, I, I think that the, the training in schools is in principle to be welcome because I do think we need to break through 
this idea of only professionals can deal with this. Mm -hmm. I did my own research on suicide, although it, it's a long time ago now, but I interviewed 47 people who'd made quite serious suicide attempts. Um, and one of, the, one of the things that came through in that, when I, when I asked the question, what could have prevented this? One of the things that came through was that very many of them said, if only there had been somebody who really understood how I had felt, mm -hmm. that might have made a difference. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and peers, I think, are always very, very important with the younger age groups, kids and mm -hmm. teenagers. There is far more impact when a peer is able to share things with them sometimes than, than when an adult mm -hmm. tries to attempt to do that. I think it, hold that thought, Angela, because actually this uh, goes very much <clears throat> to something that I want to talk about later, which is, you know, the balance between kind of, you know, a, a focus on just preventing people taking actions and, and supporting them and sort of supporting their kind of autonomy and choice. But it, it does seem to me that you're giving a kind of qualified welcome to the notion of school, um, you know, sort of school intervention. And it does seem to me to be a good thing in terms of picking up distress, which you know can be you know, hidden and, and unacknowledged. I do wonder if there's a sense in which Theresa May, like many many politicians, before is slightly falling into the trap of assuming that you can sort of triage things and make demand go down. You know, the founders of the NHS thought that we would solve the the big health problems of the age, and that demand would go down. And that seemed, well, like you started laughing because in one way it does seem laughable, really. And I think that's because of the way, it, I think that is true, and it's because of the way it's pitched as mental illness as opposed to distress mm -hmm. per se, although obviously they're on a continuum. So if it's distress, it can potentially be handled mm. In, in school if it's mental illness it has to be by definition almost handed over to somebody else in some other mm -hmm. service. I do think there is a point in there and whether you think you know identifying things under a banner of mental health problems or not is a good or a bad thing or a complicated thing. The sense in which ultimately there is a danger of creating more demand for services that aren't necessarily there really. And we're talking, we're going to go on to talk about what we've started talking about, suicide. And I wonder if feeling suicidal or having suicidal thoughts is automatically a mental health issue in itself or not. And I think that's quite a complex issue. Well, I'm wondering if this would perhaps be a good moment to go to our interview with our colleague over in Canterbury, Ian Marsh, whom I spoke to earlier today. He was hoping to be with us, but the snow put paid uh, to that work quite an elevated level here, both intellectually and physically. <laughs> and, nice one. <laughs> and um, it, uh, unfortunately Ian, Ian couldn't get across and we, we better not go too long with this discussion or we may not be able to get home. Uh, so we'll go over to the uh, interview with Ian now. Okay, I'm here with our colleague who's an occupational therapist and member of our allied health faculty, Ian Marsh, who's the author of a number of papers looking at aspects of suicide, suicidal policy, and the book uh, Suicide, Foucault, History and the Truth. Ian, we've had a select committee report looking at suicide prevention policy in the last week or so, and we've had a government update on the 2012 suicide prevention strategy. 
Yourself and Anne Cook wrote something on the Select Committee report for our blog uh, a few days ago. But I'd be grateful if you could walk us through what some of the main points of these two documents are and some of the features that we should be looking out for. Yeah, well, the Select Committee report um, came about, I think, you know, the Health Committee because there was a concern that the suicide rates were um, remaining high, particularly after the 2008 financial crash. And then Theresa May's speech was in relation to that, but also in relation to the, like you said, the the revamped suicide prevention strategy, national suicide prevention strategy. And the main points came out of the um, House of Commons Health um, Select Committee were actually around how the suicide prevention strategy has been implemented, which is now the responsibility of local authorities. So locally, it's Kent County Council and Medway County Council. And there was concern that many... counties didn't have um, local suicide prevention plans in place and kind of local suicide prevention groups set up. So that's part of the context for that. Theresa May's speech was also about generally about mental health and how we look at mental health at the moment and stuff about stigma. And then the revamped um, suicide prevention strategy was, it's not a huge departure from what was done before. But what's interesting at the moment, it seems to have risen up the political agenda. Now that's quite interesting in itself that it's kind of come to the political agenda because it's the sort of thing that politicians don't often want to kind of highlight the fact that suicide rates are, are, are rising. Um, I was actually at a suicide prevention the steering group for the Kent and Medway yesterday um, and it was very interesting. It was someone quite senior from um, NHS England was also present and it seems to be a top priority for NHS England at the moment as well. So it's interesting times, I think. So the reduction of the suicide rate is a very high priority for NHS England, yes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I was quite struck by looking through the report was um, an idea that suicide rates, at least at the very least, haven't reduced, possibly actually have gone, have risen slightly. But within services, they seem to have reduced. And I was wondering about that. It's something that you mentioned in your piece that you wrote for us about, the, you know, the degree to which suicide risks could actually be controlled um, you know by, by services and just how useful you know kind of contact with services actually was for reducing yeah. rates it doesn't necessarily seem to be having the desired effect more widely society yeah yeah and and, and that's it i mean it's about 28 percent of people that end their own lives are known to services and, and that rate's been pretty constant what has gone down are inpatient suicides and that's mostly to do with ligature removing ligature points from inpatient wards rather than any new kind of risk assessment or management kind of um, stuff um they've gone up the suicide rates have gone up for people in contact with crisis teams but that's mostly because crisis and home treatment teams are seeing many more people but again that's something that's been flagged up about whether um crisis teams are seeing the right people um, have the capacity to manage people deemed to be high risk. But there's a broader point around risk assessment, which we touched upon in, in the, the, the blog, which is around whether risk is, you look at, you know, risk factors and risk assessment and kind of approaches um, are the right way to, to, to go about um, reducing suicides, really. And, and there's a, a paper in the British Journal of Psychiatry, the bulletin section, that kind of summarises some of the recent research that is suggesting that actually there's not that strong a link between 
people reporting suicide, well, the history of suicidal thoughts and suicidal plans and actions and actually eventual suicides. And that throws into doubt the whole risk assessment process. There's a couple of things with risk assessment. One, it, it, it kind of tends to be based on large population studies. So it's epidemiological and it's kind of useful at highlighting that more men than women kill themselves. But actually, when you get down to an individual level, that population level epidemiological data isn't that useful kind of predicting suicide risk like if you're seeing someone clinically and you have a male in front of you the fact that they're men are more three times more likely to, to end their lives than, than, than women doesn't actually tell you whether that person in front of you is likely to kill themselves in the next week next month next year and in fact none of the risk factors are particularly useful at that and that's what that article was highlighting that actually those risk factors and risk assessment procedures aren't good predictors of eventual suicides. Well, I did. I had wondered about that for a number of years, actually. Obviously, we work in a, a training capacity here in Tunbridge Wells and uh, certainly practicing clinically, but also looking at our trainees going out into services. There does seem to be some anxiety, which is, I think, you know, quite understandably directed to, uh, towards clinicians, including, including them, that, you know, they have to be able to, at some level, almost look into yeah. a crystal ball really and see who is going to you know who is going to potentially be at risk and who is perhaps going to be less risky and it was quite salutary I mean I've always wondered just how uh, you know how realistic that was and it was quite salutary to find that on a you know in a, in a research study suggesting actually god that may be mm. completely unrealistic actually and I sort of wonder where that leaves services in terms of looking at, in terms of, you know, the the expectation that they Yeah, I mean, the, it's interesting. I mean, the other kind of new idea that's around with suicide prevention is the zero suicide approach that, that has come out of the Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit in the United States. And it's complicated and, and the claims made, I, I don't think, stand up to huge amount of scrutiny but they do seem to have reduced suicide albeit in a in a population that isn't necessarily representative of, of, of a broader population but they don't do they they didn't organize their suicide prevention around um, degrees of risk or levels of risk they offered good what they you know good care to all people that presented to their service like with a mood disorder so they weren't categorizing people as high low you know medium low risk they were saying all people would be offered the same kind of opportunities to get in touch if they're feeling suicidal we give them a number to contact you know we're following up quite assertively over the first few weeks after assessment and things so there is something that actually the the clinical utility of saying this person's high medium or low risk because of you know what they've said or what their you know kind of gender or previous history is um maybe that's not the key maybe the actual approach is that which again i suspect most people who work clinically know it's actually the relationship it's the connectivity it, it's the, the the sense of kindness and care that is around that contacts and, and around how services engage rather than some score sheet or some you know assessment tool um so it's the assessment is a way into kind of relating to someone in a humane and kind way rather than a tool that measures you know objectively measures something that is clinically useful for you um i know many clinicians like tools and you know in forensic services particularly they maybe have some utility in predicting violent behaviors but i think around suicide there's not a lot of evidence that it, it is effective really 
Well, I was uh, I was wondering about what you say about the notion of not necessarily categorising people according to risk, but just actually thinking a little bit more about how yeah. how you care, really, how you offer care. I mean, again, I think a, a very strong experience for me, certainly working in um, clinical services, and I know that this is one that you know from discussions that we've had before that that, that this is one that you also relate to is the idea that, you know, actually categorising people according to their risk and then trying to prevent the risk. Well, it can sometimes take you into some slightly odd places in the sense that you're all about stopping them and stopping their behaviours rather than about trying to think in a more broadly caring way. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm sure you know your own experiences that once someone mentions suicide in a conversation under the current set up of services it's kind of almost inevitable that you become slightly defensive in your questioning you, you're trying to elicit information you're thinking about recording that information passing it on with half an eye on to oh my you know goodness if this person does end their life then that's bad not just for them but it's also the questions that will be asked about whether the assessment you did was okay whether you acted in the right way whether you should have prevented that suicide so there's almost an inevitability that the conversation moves away from the, uh, you know, one that would be seen as therapeutically good towards one that's more around that kind of risk management stuff that, again, many service users that I've talked to and, and read say that it's not helpful to have those conversations, you know, that become defensive and kind of try to objectively categorise. I mean, it seems to me that you're kind of drawing a distinction here between, you know, a more broad stance of help in a way that ultimately you hope will address the risk um, posed by somebody. But you're drawing a distinction by implying that sometimes if you are to, I think you use the word defensive, or if you're too defensive or driven by the risk, then you you may potentially be moving into places that people might actually perversely somewhat or against what may be good intentions actually find less than helpful yeah and and this i was, I was just reviewing one, one of your um uh, qualified trainees now lucy nolan tampi's kind of um, the research project she did um, whilst at salomon's which taught to clinicians and and that's some of the conclusions she drew that the, the kind of ways of thinking around suicide in terms of risk assessment and management can lead to clinicians thinking quite defensively and acting quite defensively and the implication would be that that's also experienced by service users as, as, as not being helpful it's you know it, it it's not something that i'm saying that people should be very lazy fair about I, I think it is important your response and to take seriously when people are talking about suicide but you've got to keep in mind what their best interests are and 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 that kind of institutionally kind of backed kind of defensive behavior i mean i i, I would say isn't always useful mm-hmm. i mean it's, it's an interesting and again i suppose uh you know some uh, a lesson that may bring one up short really i mean i think we can see the pressure you know to avoid any death actually um and you can see i I think i can see how people find the notion of zero suicide appealing and the notion of you know avoiding any such tragedy but i mean ultimately it seems to me that you're saying that we we may struggle to predict and prevention may not necessarily always be within our power and the things that we may do to prevent something in a very short term window hospital or you know taking steps to control actually may sometimes end up taking us somewhere taking us somewhere where we don't want to go with somebody or something that they may experience as less caring and less helpful 
Yeah, and and I think that the um, British Journal Psychiatry Bulletin argue, uh, our article was also arguing that you know because we rely on these risk assessment kind of processes and tools, we often end up detaining people against their will under the Mental Health Act um, far more than maybe would is again is kind of, is kind of useful, and actually that can cause distress for people that is you know at the you'd question the preventative kind of aspects of inpatient care sometimes and that's why crisis and home treatment teams are partly set up but again if they're coming under more pressure and and there's an implied criticism that crisis home resolution teams aren't able to manage suicide risk and then the pressure becomes to admit more people it's not necessarily a straightforward equation that you um, assess someone as high risk you admit into hospital that's necessarily long term something that people find beneficial or, or, or safe. I mean, the wards are safer because it's the access to means. As, you know, say the ligature points are being removed, but psychologically and emotionally over a period of time, I remember an awful lot of people saying to me, I am not going back into hospital under any circumstances, an awful experience. And I don't think that's an uncommon kind of report from, from, from people. Not to say that hospital can't be, but generally what I remember is that they weren't perceived as being very helpful. Well, it seems that the best will in the world can sometimes betray us. We'll have to bring it to a close there, but I just want to say, I mean, thanks thanks very much for talking to us, Ian. I know you were supposed to be coming across here to speak to us today, but we've been thwarted by the snow. So um, hopefully um, a Skype conversation will be, an, will be an adequate substitute. Okay, thank you, Ian. Brilliant. Thanks, John. That was brilliant. Yeah, thanks. That was Ian Marsh. Just thinking about some of the things he said, I mean, what we were mainly focusing on was the, the part of Theresa May's announcement, which tied in to uh, an updating of the government's main flagship suicide prevention policy. It's clear the suicide prevention policy has been in place. It's clear that suicide rates are something that are taken politically quite seriously. And one of the things that Ian was saying there obviously was about you know the notion of the degree to which mental health services can realistically a predict and b prevent you know prevent um, suicide and I mean you've all had experience of, of working with people who've had you know really really despairing thoughts and for a, I guess a variety of different motion um, a variety of different motivations you know made you know attempts on their own lives what, what do you think of the the well the, the overall strategy which we've all kind of had a, a look at but also the kind of updating as well and because I know that you wrote something about the the select committee re, interim select committee report that came out um, a few days before Theresa May's speech yes well, I think it's a bit like Angela was saying just now it's about how you think of suicide it, 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 the problem with the I think with both the Theresa May's approach and the approach of the um, health select committee is that Suicide's almost take it's almost taken as a given that it it is something that just happens. The psychology of suicide is sort of missing. What you were talking about, Angela, about the you know the very complex reasons that lead people to be so desperate uh, that they take their own lives. I mean, I can think of several people actually that I've worked with clinically who did take their own lives, and the reasons for those were very different for each person. They're very complex, and I do worry slightly about this zero suicide kind of culture where you know it's it's almost assumed that um, that it's the job of clinicians because it's a symptom of mental illness it's the job of clinicians to be able to predict it 
um, and to prevent it. And that leads to a kind of blaming, potential blaming of us, of clinicians, when it does happen, uh, which really, I mean, I was very lucky that that wasn't around at the time when these things happened. For me and my colleagues were very understanding and that enabled me to cope with it. And I worry, I worry about the culture that says we should be able to, that we're kind of almost hoisting ourselves by our own petard, mm. saying that we should be able to, to prevent people taking their own lives. I mean, that was very much my experience working in inpatient services. I think that was something that the staff group were terrified about happening. We were working with very high-risk people, and I think that the staff were terrified that if somebody was able to, to did take their own life, that, that they would be blamed, they would lose their job in some way. But the impact of that meant that that was almost the sort of main priority when working with people. So it would be almost one of the first things that you would ask if there was a hint that somebody might be expressing suicidal thoughts, then perhaps they would be put on massively high levels of observation, deemed to be extremely mentally unwell, and perhaps um, their medication would be reviewed and increased and so on. And I think that there was a negative of that in that it then meant that people were perhaps reluctant to talk about how they were feeling or experiencing Mm. things, which is potentially the most important role that we have. So I think sometimes risk assessment of suicide risk was kind of actually backfiring and meaning that we weren't offering the best service. But I can understand why staff were doing that because they were so anxious that that what would happen to themselves and their jobs or the service if somebody did kill themselves. Mm. So it's like, uh, sorry, I was going to say... Well, like, I think you've hit the nail on mm. the head there with regard to the impact on service users mm. that... You know, when there is going to be negative consequences for genuine distress in that sort of way, they're going to be unlikely to come forward when mm. they need to. They're yeah. going to be unlikely to discuss their their feelings with professionals because for fear of what might happen. Mm. Mm. You know, and not just in forensic services that you're talking about. I heard on the radio the other day of a lady who had was feeling suicidal and phoned 999 for help. And police came and arrested her. She was stripped naked, put in a police cell, restrained the whole bit. Why on earth would anybody want to seek help if that is going to be the response? I mean, I think that's an extremely extreme response, which obviously sounds terrible. But certainly a regular response would be, OK, you feel suicidal, I'm going to have to take this further, speak to a psychologist psychiatry colleague there was no then discussion about why might you feeling like that what support can we be putting in place more sort of in-depth thinking um, and planning so it's really ironic that uh, Angela said a few minutes ago that the one thing people said would have helped is somebody really listening and understanding and our own the way that we think about suicide within services is actually stopping us doing mm-hmm. that very thing, mm-hmm. stopping us... Well, that, this is very much what Ian was saying in our, in our, in our conversation, and I, I, I find that hugely resonant for me in services, working in inpatient acute mental health services, which I did for many years, and in some sense, I mean, I, I can really, as somebody who's also been touched on a personal level as well as, you know, professionally... I can really see the pull of zero suicide policies. I can really see the call of that, mm-hmm. you know, profoundly. It feels like any death in summer should be something that we try to avoid. Yeah. I suppose where it really begins to worry me, though, is, again, as Ian was saying, is when we just start to focus on risk. We just start to focus on risk 
and trying to assess the degree of risk. A, the, the paper that we were talking about in the British Journal of Psychiatry recently is suggesting that you know, the predictability of that is you know, a lot less than we would wish. And I've certainly heard people aspire to you know, having a very perfect model of predicting and knowing what's going to happen. But I suppose the other side of it is even if you are able to predict, that's not the same as what you should do. And if you're only focused on actually just sitting on, containing, squashing out the risk, it, it certainly it seems to lead to places that for me are really not where I want to be as an effective psychologist or in fact as a human being you know to be honest you know it's really just controlling Controlling. people taking away you know bringing them into hospital which may be distressing Mm. leaving things so that they can't actually confide and get support because you know be action stations and this is this is a tough dilemma for services i think and they really struggle with it well i think what's missing from this prevention strategy is the voice of the service user, the voice of the survivor. Mm. Instead, it is all about control and management, and, and in a very paternalistic way. You know, professionals are saying, we know what's good for you, and this is what we're going to deliver. Where is the service user in this saying what they would like to happen in situations like this? What would be helpful? What would have enabled them to feel better about what was occurring, be less distressed by it? Because ultimately we want to stimulate somebody's own resources to manage better in future, and that is exactly what gets squashed in in this very controlling process. I I don't know if anyone's really necessarily intending for that to happen, because I think that the will behind these things is is good. The, the, The will behind the suicide prevention strategy is good, but I suppose it's just thinking about the reality of it on the ground. I mean, for starters, there's a big assumption that mental health services are necessarily a good place to be um, with those food. You know, they, they may or may not be. It, it's, it depends on how... The person may not have a mental health problem. Yeah, don't they you know, say about... Not everybody who kills themselves mm-hmm. is depressed or mm-hmm. has a, a so-called mental illness. The figures suggest up to a third of people who have killed themselves have been in contact with mental health mm-hmm. services mm-hmm. in the last year, doesn't it? So that's two-thirds mm-hmm. that haven't been. That's not to say they haven't had a mental health problem but they haven't been in contact with mental health services and we do know that lots of the sort of factors that have been associated with completed suicide are things like unemployment, debt problems, relationship breakdown, so it's not just associated with being depressed or mental yes, illness Yes, one such. of the um, figures that Ian and I quoted in the piece, the piece we wrote on the blog was which really, really striking to me that nearly a half of people on employment and support allowance have attempted to take their own lives. Mm. Wow, what a figure. Well, I mean, that I guess brings me to the, the other bit of the discussion, I suppose, which is, has been on my mind a lot since reading your article, which is the notion of the extent to which the MP Select Committee report, which is what you were writing about, um, you know, Theresa May's speech and the suicide prevention strategy are touching on something that we actually discussed extensively in the, in the last mm. episode, which is, you know, a notion of something... Uh, the the lens through which we see suicide rates 
as being quite an individual one inside people's heads rather than thinking about sometimes broader factors like you know you know unemployment or social inequality I and mean, i think there's an attempt actually to look across populations a bit focus on you know groups like you know middle-aged men or, or groups that are perceived to be at risk but this was something that you felt yourself and ian i think and felt that was was really lacking in the mp's report for all the good things in that but also I'm guessing in the suicide strategy and its updates. Yes I think in a way it's a kind of side effect of our our construction of suicide as a symptom of mental illness it doesn't then invite it it, I suppose it closes down it has the potential to close down curiosity then you know that's the answer it's just a symptom Mm -hmm. rather than encouraging us to look at you know the things in the person's life that may have led them to feel so desperate and look you know at a more general level when we're thinking about suicide prevention for example at the thing you know the groups in society that that may well you know have real difficulties and think about what might lead to people to feel so desperate because suicide doesn't arise in a vacuum Mm. No, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of thinking as well in the in the current economic climate. If you really can't make it economically, if you can't feed your kids, you can't turn the heating on, and you're cold. You have no idea what the future may bring. You have inadequate housing. You feel as though you have failed as a parent because you can't help your family. Why wouldn't you become desperate, actually? That's not mental illness. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a human response to appalling circumstances. And we're reading about these things in in the papers every single day. And we see it everywhere, mm-hmm. certainly, even in Leafield, Kent and Sussex, you know, just the number of people who are around who are homeless is noticeably mm-hmm. large. I mean, it's touching us everywhere, not just the statistics, the bald statistics, mm-hmm. it is touching us. But there are statistics, aren't there? Because suicide rates are ten times higher in the most deprived area than the least deprived area. So there are statistics to be backing this up, and, and that is a bit of a gap in the current government strategy. I think there is lots of great ideas and actually lots of new and interesting ideas around um, internet use and things. I think there was lots of good ideas and strategies there, but I think in terms of disadvantage, they've got less ideas about strategies. So, to be fair, Theresa May did name that, mm. but didn't needs to go beyond that Mm. just on that point about use of the internet and the kind of sharing of information i'm just wondering how we kind of understand that because it's clear that we are in a different world really from 20 years ago to when any of us were teenagers or in our 20s for example just thinking about young people and internet use it is a very different world and you can get access to you know all, all sorts of things that may not simply just remain thoughts in your head but it turns out there are youtube people with youtube channels about you know their eating issues or about self-harm or about suicidal feelings and you know how, how do we how do we feel about that well, in some ways, I think there's there's positives because there's also an online support network. So mm-hmm. some people who wouldn't want to present to mental health services are accessing support through an online community. So there's some positives, but also there's lots of very sort of dangerous groups and websites, aren't there, about 
how you can kill yourself and so on, which are obviously very dangerous and worrying. Yeah, I, I don't think I can add to that really. I think there's a, an upside to the internet. I think it, the internet has had a role in reducing stigma in, in so-called mental illness because I think people feel far less lonely with it than perhaps they had used to. But yes, there's some very dicey stuff on the internet as well and we know that young people are only too keen to access it. Mm-hmm. And also online bullying things like that which we know are kind of factors in leading people to feel suicidal. I suppose one of the things just to move it away from that slightly that's been missing for me from this discussion a bit is what can we do to help people and we've talked about a lot about the kind of vicious circle whereby the ideas we draw on in mental health services often paradoxically stop us being helpful mm. uh, but what, what what can be helpful I, I was very struck by something I heard years ago uh, a guy from the Samaritan said that he thought that mental health professionals make the worst Samaritans and I think that's probably because of what Angela was saying about you know the, the paternalistic idea that we ought to be able to solve people's problems actually stops us listening mm. but of course the, there are services like that where the uh, they're not based on the assumption that suicidality is a symptom of mental illness uh, but it is a part of normal human experience and they don't have the assumption that they ought to stop it it's the, yeah. you know, they're the, not immediately trying to save you mm. which I think is a, tr- uh, is a trap or I find it's yeah. a trap you mean mental health services <laughs> in mental or, health yeah. services yeah. the immediate move to save which is the most natural thing in the world yeah. I think in another human being in pain Indeed. but in some sense the awareness of it sometimes stopping you doing sometimes what you need to do. Exactly, and there are crisis services as well, crisis houses, which are run on the principle that it's up to, you know, people can make their own decisions, we're not going to take them away from them, but we need to be there for people and listening and providing that understanding that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think we need way, way more of those, and we're Mm -hmm. far too focused on beds and inpatient facilities. Okay, we need those, but we need many, many more crisis houses, crisis facilities. I think it's really ironic that one of our local crisis houses in Sussex, its closure has just been announced the Mm -hmm. same day or the day after Theresa May's speech. I'd agree with that, Anne, and I think, you know, the the normalisation of distress could play a huge role in that. That if people could become more confident about talking to others about their distress instead of immediately cutting it away and saying oh gosh you know you're you're talking about things that are really frightening to me now you must go and see a mental health professional exactly that could go a long way towards helping i agree and this 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 figure that's banded about Theresa may used it again one in four of us have mental health problems Mm -hmm. well nobody wants to be that one in four it's 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 a bit, there's a risk that it becomes a bit divisive, that it says that the people who have mental health problems aren't us, you know, we're the normal people. Whereas actually, we all have psychological distress, we all have psychological yeah. problems. And I think, I guess that's the normalising framework you were talking about, and that is a much more enabling framework in terms of, well, to me anyway, in terms of encouraging you to talk about it, because it's okay, it's normal. Mm. Well, um, and I think, you know, lay people are often very afraid of discussing something as potentially frightening as suicide because they think that doing so will encourage the person to kill themselves. We know from research that it's exactly the opposite, actually, that the more those difficult feelings are spoken about, the less likely it is that the person will act on them. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the very first message that needs to be put across, really. 
course that can be an absolutely massive challenge for well we train mental health workers here and that can be a huge fear especially in the early parts of your uh, mental health career how how do you find the words how do you find the words i mean it seems to me that what we're what we're asking for here is is at least for a stop and think around you know what what we're doing as a society are we all out for prevention does that allow room for a, a kind of care and a kind of connection a kind of respect for where people are and you know i don't know how we change that i mean that seems difficult to change because as a society it seems to me that we're certainly going through a phase at the moment of perhaps we make some very unrealistic expectations that so many things should be preventable or that we should be able to do things about so many things should be controllable is that real i don't know i don't Mm. think so but when it's a matter of life and death the pressure sort of is higher i think isn't it because Mm. you know if someone does die it's a a tragedy you know oh of course it is Every, every suicide is a tragedy but we perhaps do we do need to we do need to have a different framework around it a different way of thinking about it yeah one that enables us to listen Mm. well not only that you know I, i suppose i'm thinking also if you insure your house against roof leaks or or subsidence or something obviously you hope it's never going to happen but you can't guarantee that it won't happen. And not every suicide is preventable. Mm. You know, that's not a message that can easily be heard, but it is true, unfortunately. And in our attempts to prevent, we sometimes do harm as well. Mm. I'm reminded again of the paper we were citing in the British Journal of Psychiatry that found that, you know, a lot of people would have to be locked up to prevent one suicide and we don't actually know that suicide would be prevented anyway and meanwhile all those people are being locked up against their will mm. medicated perhaps so we have to think about the harm as well mm-hmm. so think about the harm of what we do now as well as seeing it as being about safety we get so focused on this as the safe way to go that sometimes we can neglect the risks of this very cautious strategy that we often adopt and on that note of qualified hope I think uh, we're going to have to end there Um, the best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe you can do that on iTunes by searching for discussions in Tunbridge Wells also you can find links to some of the things we've talked about on the show page on our blog discursive of Tunbridge Wells as well as that you can follow us on Twitter at CCCUAPPSY and on Facebook if you look for Canterbury Christchurch University Applied Psychology there'll be links to the Twitter feeds of all our panel on the show page too all that remains for me to do is thank all of our contributors and you for listening hopefully we'll be back soon Thank you.